Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is an RNZ podcast. Piki mai kake mai and a warm welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance ho. It's Sea Week, so I figured that we should go to the beach. We're off to Tidy Mouth, south of Dunedin, with biologist John Waters from the University of Otago, genetics PhD student Elihi Parvizzi, and geologist and emeritus professor Dave Craw. I am walking along the beach with a biologist and a geologist, and we will shortly find out what the two are collaborating on, but John has just picked up a massive piece of bull kelp. This is uh, Davilia antarctica. It's, it's a widespread around the southern hemisphere species that grows in the intertidal, but it's also buoyant, so it gets uh, broken off from the shore in a storm, and it can actually float for 1,000 kilometres or 10,000 kilometres. It's quite an exciting species. And it's got this holdfast, which is where it was gripping onto the rock when it's been torn away, and there's a whole lot of stuff in there. It's what we call a habitat-forming species, so it almost creates its own ecosystem. And it really becomes the, the home for a bunch of different species living in the intertidal. Now, in the holdfast I've got here, we can see uh, we've got a mussel there, we've got a little chitin here. That's called onothochitin, and it's, it's what we call a brooding species. It doesn't release its young into the water column, into the sea. The only way that this guy can get around is by crawling few millimetres, otherwise it needs to rely on this, this kelp to provide a hitchhiking service. So, so basically the, the kelp breaks off and takes the chitons with them and that's how they can get around. And as a result, both the kelp and the, uh, and the things that are living in there, they're quite interesting to us. So you've got long distance travellers and a long distance travel mechanism basically, well, it's right. like their bus. And we've found species that live all the way around the Southern Ocean, so I said the kelp can break off and it can raft, it can float all the way over to Chile. And we've got some of the same species turning up in, in the same sorts of habitats all the way around the Southern Ocean. So, yeah, we really think this kelp is an important way that these things get around. Another interesting thing I was going to mention here is that you can see in this kelp holdfast there's actually bits of rock that are still attached, which kind of shows how strong the kelp is. It's often the rock that breaks before the kelp breaks in the storm. But because there are different rocks in different places, when one of these breaks off and goes to sea and comes, gets washed back ashore, you can look at the rock and work out where it came from. And Dave here is the geologist, and he can often look at these rocks and say, ah, oh, that's from Fjordland, or oh, that one came down from the Southern Antarctic, so, or oh, that one's from the Catlands. So he can really help us quantify how far these things travel and how often they travel that sort of distance. So it's a, it's a kind of a combination of the biology and the geology makes it quite uh, exciting to work together on this. So cue the geologists. Well, we're standing on right on the Akator Fault, which is uh, an, act, an active fault uh, just south of Dunedin, 
Uh, it's a well-known uh, act of structure that uh, people in Dunedin are well aware of. But we're standing on the fault here and uh, immediately out to sea there's a row of rocks and that's the uplifted side of the fault. So that came up within the last thousand years or so and uh, exposed those rocks. And uh, a bit to the north we've got Tyree Island which is about the northern limit of the, the major zone of uplift. The island is there because it's on the uplifted side of the fault and the, the fault goes onshore here, uh, heading towards the south, and uh, there's a coastal zone there that has been uplifted uh, over the, the last 100,000 years or so uh, by something like 60 metres. The biggest earthquake seemed to make a, an uplift step in, along the fault of about two metres, give or take. So uh, this, this happens every few hundred years. Uh, on the fault itself, it, it, it's within the last uh, few hundred years or a thousand years. And on the coast here, uh, away from the fault, which is where we've been doing our work with the kelp, uh, the, there are steps that are about a thousand years old. Uh, and the, the question that we've been trying to answer is, did those steps all happen at once with a big bang, or did they uh, come up incrementally, a, a little bit at a time? And uh, the question that the biologists want to know is, did it kill uh, all of the uh, intertidal uh, biota when it came up? Now, if this is sounding familiar, you're right. It's exactly what happened to the Kaikoura coastline during the November 2016 earthquake. Well, that's right. There are places along that coast that came up six to eight metres, so nothing can have hung on. And, but that's over a 50 or 60 kilometre zone where in some places it was really heavily uplifted and other, t- other places not so much. So there's that sort of regional effect as how much got wiped out and how much is going to be able to hold on or come back. And in places where it did get wiped out, what's the time frame of things coming back and how does that disturbance actually ultimately change things like the genetic distribution and structure of those species? And that's some of the questions that we've got following on from Kaikoura, but also looking back at some of New Zealand's older quakes, like this one down here south of Dunedin, and also the ones that have happened around Wellington in the 1800s. So there are lots of questions out there. But when we look at what's happened here, down near the Akator Fault, we can still see a striking genetic signature of that change that happened a thousand years ago. So Ellie here is doing a PhD. She's just started in the last six months. The first thing we thought we'd do is, well, let's have a look. Dave mentioned that we had this active fault just south of Dunedin, so we thought that would be a good place to start. And so we started by genetically comparing the kelp that's growing on that uplifted stretch of the fault um, on the coast there versus the flanking populations which weren't uplifted to the north and to the south. In our wildest dreams, we thought maybe there'll be something interesting there, but we had no real expectation. But the first thing we found was, it was bang, hey presto, it's a dramatic difference in the uplifted stretch versus the, the stretches that weren't uplifted. So it's almost as though you can use the genetics to, to determine where the uplift happened, and there's a perfect match between the geological uplift and the genetic differences. So it's super exciting for us that... You can see the effects of a geological event a thousand years ago. You can see that today in the things that are still growing there. For us, that's just astonishing that we can see those signatures persisting a thousand years till today. 
So how does kelp disperse? We've looked at a, a dead adult kelp here that's clearly pulled away from a rock somewhere and floated around, but it's not like a plant. It's not going to take root here again. We have boy kelps and we have girl kelps. So what we almost need is a boy and a girl kelp to wash up at the same place and then release their sperm and eggs, which can then unite and form a new plant which colonises the intertidal right there. The good thing about this kelp is actually sometimes you get ones that grow conjoined where they share a holdfast. And if we look around here, you can see one over there. So here we've, here we've got a holdfast, but there's actually three different plants conjoined there. They've got different stipes, but you know one of those might be a boy and one might be a girl. So they're simultaneously able to, able to release their gametes and have a fertilised egg which can then settle on the, on the shore. So in this study, we've got kelp on one side of the uplifted zone that that didn't die we got kelp on the other side of the uplifted zone that didn't die wouldn't the chances be that it would be the local kelp that would reinvade the empty area you'd think it'd be something from reasonably nearby that that gets in but but really it's a bit of a lottery and it might just be that the one that got in had come from down in the catlins or down in Stewart island or something like that but equally it could have come from somewhere further north and what we think in this case happened was that maybe there was a strong northerly blowing for a few days and the stuff that's got in has probably come from Togo Peninsula or somewhere like that. You know, so tens of kilometres, even 100 kilometres further north, we think that the kelp that has re-established has come from so far away that it's genetically quite distinguishable from what is immediately north and what's immediately south. So that's why there's such a strong imprint of this because what got in and replaced the original kelp was so genetically different. There's a question that follows on from that is that you get one of these disturbance events and it changes things but how long can that signature of change last? The idea that you can go and recover a signature from something that's a thousand years old is pretty cool. Maybe it lasts for 10,000 years, maybe it lasts for 100,000 years so that's the sort of question that we really want to look into those things because that's a kind of a fundamental biological question if you disturb populations can you really see the the uh, consequences of that extending well into the future that idea that you can use it to retrace history so maybe we can go and use these genetic techniques and look at historical or prehistoric earthquakes elsewhere in the world you know there are there are exciting things in the mediterranean where the, the coast was uplift in in the ancient roman times or something like that pompeii I'd love to go to the Mediterranean and do some of these studies. It, it would be really good. Uh, other people have been doing them in, in the Mediterranean uh, from the point of view of species. They've been looking at uh, how species get displaced during uplift. But uh, in doing that, it's not easy to tell uh, the thing that we're trying to tell here, whereas uh, we're trying to distinguish between incremental uplift and sudden uh, big uplift. And uh, just looking at species doesn't do that. If you can uh, find some kind of genetic discontinuity within a species, all of a sudden that really does tell us something that we didn't know before. So we know about the uplift, but we just don't know how it happened. John mentioned earlier that there are often quite large rocks stuck in the holdfasts of the floating kelp, and there's certainly lots of evidence of this on the beach. In this respect, they're a lot like glacial erratic boulders, which can be enormous chunks of rock, dragged many kilometres from their source by glaciers, which have subsequently melted. We've had a piece of granite from Snares turned up here, and the big ones, they come from Fjordland, western Fjordland, so they come right around the coast, 
Uh, we're not sure if they go through Fovo Strait or around the uh, south side of Stewart Island, but they end up here, uh, sometimes, yeah, up to uh, 8, 10 kilograms. They're, they're, they're huge rocks, and they would be left on the beach once the kelp rots as an erratic that is very similar to a glacic one. And uh, John and I were uh, working on this when we, we first started with this uh, kelp rock stuff, uh, pointing out that uh, a lot of the things that have been called uh, glacial erratics uh, offshore uh, New Zealand, uh, thought to have been dropped by icebergs, could actually uh, have been dropped by kelp coming from the south. Uh, so that stuff is scattered all over the sea floor out on the Chatham Rise. Thanks, Dave. That was Dave Craw. And we also heard from biologist John Waters talking about work being carried out by genetics PhD student Elihi Pavitsi, and they are all at the University of Otago. Dave and John, by the way, have both been on Our Changing World before, together and separately, talking about a wide range of things from gold and extinct sea lions to a project using the genetics of freshwater fish to make sense of wide-scale tectonic uplift across the South Island. There are links to all those stories as well as to Sea Week on our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tato au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tato au whanui. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now it's time to catch up with the Kākāpō Files podcast, where we're up to episode 12, following the longest and biggest Kākāpō breeding season on record. Managing this all is taking a lot of people, and not just the Kākāpō recovery team from the Department of Conservation, some of whom we've met on the show before. There are also volunteers from around the world, as well as skilled experts from other conservation organisations. Let's meet some of the Kākāpō helpers. I am walking around the hut, finding out what people are up to. You're in bright orange overalls with a Meridian logo on. Who are you and what are you here for? I'm Ruben, I'm from Meridian. I'm just down here, just looking after the power system, just checking it out and, yeah, making sure it's working fine. Now, as the Kākāpō programme has become more and more dependent on technology, I imagine its use of power has grown. So where does the electricity for all of these bits of equipment come from? So the hut's kind of grown over the years and it's kind of morphed into what it is today. We've come from a variety of powers. Was obviously, being on an island, you can't just plug into the, into the mains. So we have uh, the hydro system, which is um, not working today because it's quite dry, for, quite, quite unusually for down here. And we've also got um, solar panels, which also feed into it. And we've also got a backup diesel generator if the, if the demand is, is high. Hydro, solar and a diesel generator, that's pretty good. So... What are you actually doing, just making sure that everything is working properly? Yes, giving a bit of a service and making sure everything's working properly. And I say, been given a list of little jobs that aren't quite right. So yeah, just just giving it a tidy up, really. This must be a bit tricky because it's not like you can power down everything and and work your way through it. Yeah, it's just very, very tricky. It's a bit like trying to do a service on a car while it's driving down the motorway at 100 mile an hour. Well, it's very critical at the moment, and I'm thinking it's particularly critical to have power here because they've got all those eggs in the incubators which they need to keep running. They've got those little chicks that need to stay warm. So yeah. you really can't afford the power to go down. Yes, it's, it's one of them things that you, you don't realise how important it is until it, it stops working, really. Pretty, quite critical to, to everything, really, here. I can hear the generator going... Would we be able to just go and have a quick peek at it to see what it sounds like up close? Sure. So the generator is a little distance from the hut, which is a nice thing. It's got its own house. 
Will she be? So, I guess what my main job is trying to make the um, the solar and the hydro systems more efficient. Because obviously, at the moment, we are having to use the generator because the demand is quite high. We have all incubators and all people on the island. However, we have made quite a few improvements to the solar system just to just to so we don't lie in it quite so much. Well, I might just grab a few seconds of just the generator and then yeah. we might leave because yeah. it's not the nicest sound no. in the world. Thanks, Ruben. And while the generator is indeed not the nicest sound for sure, it's a constant background sound around the hut. Now I'm on my way to another engine room of the Kakapo program, the kitchen. But before I get there, I'm going to detour via another iconic Fenua Ho sound. And that's the toilet sign being put across the track on the way to the composting toilet to indicate that it's occupied. Right, back to the hut. It sounds a bit like a factory, but that's actually the whistle of a kettle on the stove. But it doesn't mean I'm going to get a cup of tea. There are two kettles here, one for humans and one for kakapo chicks, which that one is, not that they drink tea. It's specially designated for heating and sterilising the water that will be used to bring chick food up to the perfect temperature. The chicks are fed every two hours to begin with, so that sound is a very familiar one. And there is a very familiar face hard at work in the kitchen. So, Shrike, I'm ambushing you in the kitchen. Can I get you to quickly introduce yourself and say who you are and what you're doing on Whenua Ho? Shrike O'Malley. I'm the cook here for the next couple of weeks. So that seems like quite a big job. There's about 16 people on the island. Yeah, it's an exciting job. I like the outside stuff too, so it's a nice combination. So I get to go out during the morning, some mornings, and do things kākāpō, and then come back here and cook up. Keep people going. Keep people going, that's right, that's right. And um, juggle the different dietary requirements and, yeah, try and keep everyone happy, but, yeah... Not not a trained cook, so the person before me was a trained chef and he was extraordinary, so <laughs> I'd act to follow, but I think I'd do okay. <laughs> so what have you got on the menu for tonight? Uh, tonight it's uh, vegetable and for non-vegetarians, mince, um, kind of like a Cornish pasty pie sort of thing, and I'm doing um, kumara strips that are just um, dry roasted, and then because we've got lots of broccoli that needs eating, we're having streamed broccoli as well. Now, that raises the interesting point that it's a bit feast or famine out here. You don't have the shop to pop down to. You can't go to the supermarket. No, that's so logistically, right. how does the food out here work? Oh, I think they've done an extraordinary job of keeping this place stocked. So despite it being a really busy season, there still seems to be lots of fresh vegetables and fruit, you know, which was fantastic. Copious supplies of chocolate to keep all the rangers and hard workers happy and plenty of other food, really. We've um, run out of odds and ends, but really, it's um, no dramas, there's plenty to cook with and there's plenty of good variety of energy rich and nutritious food so it's pretty impressive So it's a bit like you're the engine room for the Kakapo Recovery <laughs> Programme Don't know about that, eh? that You're keeping everybody fuelled Well yeah, to some extent I think the chocolate biscuit cupboard keeps everyone fuelled and the chips and everything else but yeah, it's great being part of it oh, Well you're beaming from ear to ear so you must be having a good time and I should let you get back to making Kumara strips Lovely, thank you Thanks, Shrike. And the hut kitchen isn't the only place on Whenua Ho where volunteers are preparing meals. Hi, I'm Ian Dorrington. I'm from Bristol and over here just to help out with the feeding programme. Hi, I'm um, Mark Flowers. I'm from Bristol 
And I'm uh, helping out on the feeding programme too. So you're in charge of the nut room. So what are you up to at the moment? It's about 8 o'clock in the morning and you look like you're getting busy for something. So we're just setting ourselves up for the day. We're kind of weighing out all the food for the birds that we're going to do on our run today. We're doing two runs. We're doing the DB run and the South Bay run. And we've got 14 birds to feed. Sue, Bella, Wolf, Queenie, Jean. I think that's Nog. Abel, Rua, Moss. <laughs> Some of the handwriting's good. Gumboots, Hakateri, Huhana, Margaret, Marie, Ruth and Bonus. And we're just about to get Gumboots, his 180 grams of uh, fine pirate food. Ah, so they've got a meal plan for every individual carcass? Yeah, every, um, we have to be really careful. There's a big board in the room where we're at, a big white board, and you can see each of the birds has their own, uh, what we're feeding them. Then we have to carefully record what we take away from them so we can monitor how much they're eating every day and how much to give them the next day. And how do you deliver this parrot food? I assume you're not going and hand-feeding them? No, there are hoppers distributed all over the island and there's a variety of hoppers. There's some hoppers which are electronically operated by the birds. Some have a data collection system so they can actually monitor which birds are feeding. Well, i better let you get on so these hungry birds um, will have their full plates waiting for them by the end of the day. There we are. They can't, we can't keep the kakapo for their breakfast. And we're not normally up at this time. We're just trying to get ahead of the rain today. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Mark. Now, the nut room isn't very big, but as well as being the kakapo kitchen, it's also serving as the sperm laboratory, where sperm collected from male kakapo up the hill is brought back to be studied. I'm Helena, I'm a vet and a scientist from Germany and I've uh, come to help with the AIs this season. Um, but what I do mostly is sit here at the lab and do sperm investigations. Well, my name is Andy, I'm a vet too and we are working in the same, same working group, avian reproduction. Most of my research I did in um, assisted reproduction in parrots and that's how we came here. I stay four weeks on this island and we try to um, help in the assisted reproduction, especially in the artificial insemination to improve the number of fertile eggs. So you've been out today collecting some semen, some sperm. Now what are you up to? Andy um, has just done the sperm concentration calculation, so that is how many sperm are there per microliter and how many spermatozoa are there in the whole semen sample. Then we have investigated the pH value and the viability, and what I'm now going to do is um, to dilute the residual semen with different diluents and investigate it over a, different, um, over a period of time to have a look at the sperm viability and motility. So I'm uh, going to investigate the sample for at least three three days, if not even four or five days. Because you're not always able to inseminate on the same day as the semen collection. So, But if you have to do it some other day, you would like the semen sample to be as viable and as motile as possible. So um, that's only possible if the semen uh, sample is provided with energy and nutrients to keep the spermatozoa alive. Now, the word sperm count was mentioned, so what have you found in your counting? 
Um, the concentration today from wolf is 3 million um, sperm per microliter. Sounds an awful lot. That sounds a lot. It's quite much more than some other parrots. Macaws, for example, they have about 30,000 only per microliter, so the difference is quite um, strong. But the other kakapos we tried, they had a much higher concentration, up to 8 or even 10 million per microliter. So the sample, the motility was not so good and the concentration was not so good neither. What is also very important to investigate is the spermophology, because even if spermatozoa are alive and motile, um, if the spermophology isn't uh, good enough, so for example, if the spermatozoa have triple heads or double tails... Uh, oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is. For example, one uh, sample of gumboots was awful. He had lots of uh, triple tails and retroversion of the tails and many deformed um, head of the spermatozoa. But Gulliver had very good semen samples, so he, he had a, the most normal spermatozoa of all. Thanks, Helena, and thanks, Andy. And that's excellent news about Gulliver's normal sperm, as he's one of the kakapo with Fiordland genes and genetically quite different from the rest of the population. The kakapo breeding season continues apace, by the way, Last I heard, the egg tally had reached 218 and there were 50 chicks alive out of 52 hatched. Of course, those numbers are almost certainly higher by now as they increase by the day. And that's it for this week. If you'd like to listen to tonight's stories again and catch up with the latest episode of The Kakapo Files, head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. The Elemental Podcast, celebrating 150 years of the periodic table, has two new episodes this week, Antimony and Argon. Stay in touch. We're on Twitter and Facebook at RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. I'll be back next week, but for now it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.